Hey, look, it's Christmas time. And what I wanted to do was focus in on the Word of God again, but perhaps not go all the way to the whole Christmas thing. You know, you can peak too early with Christmas. It's hard to sustain the, the energy. I mean, from carols last week and again tomorrow. So today we're not going to the shepherds and the wise men. We're not going to the manger and the stars and the angels and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to take a different tack. I certainly want us to focus around the Christmas theme, but I'm going to take our text today from Hosea chapter 14. Hosea being an Old Testament prophet, uh, and uh, it's probably one of those, what we would call a minor prophet, and may, you may not be so familiar with Hosea, but Hosea is a very significant book in the Bible, and he had a very strong message to speak, firstly to the nation of Israel, the first hearers of this word, and so it's significant in that sense, and so we want to look at it in its context, but then secondly, how it speaks to us in our present day, in our circumstance right now as God's church. But first, just the context. Hosea uh, is, a, as I say, the, the person whom after this book was titled was a prophet. And he was in the northern tribes of Israel, in the nation, a tribe called Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was probably the most dominant uh, tribe of the ten tribes that were in the north. And within Ephraim, there were, were two places which essentially became the religious capital from where the northern tribes did their work. First of all, Shiloh became that city and then later gave way to Samaria as the most prominent city upon which... And this is where Hosea had his ministry for about 13 years in the lead up to 722 BC. And that's a very significant year because that's the year when the Assyrians came in and devastated Samaria and overtook that city. And so Hosea was prophesying right up to that time. And in the southern kingdom at that same time, you had Isaiah and Micah as prophets who were, who were in Jerusalem and, and prophesying in that part of the world. So it is. So and so the book of Hosea is quite significant for a couple of reasons. The first reason is just the name of this prophet. Names are important in the Bible. We know that. But his name Hosea is sometimes translated also as Hoshea or Joshua or Yeshua which, of course, we know means God is our salvation or God is my salvation or God saves or some such thing. And so his name is the same name from where we derive the name Jesus as saviour. And so in the Greek, that's... So therefore, Hosea, even his name is significant. And so he is, in some sense, a type of Christ. He prefigures the coming of our Lord and saviour Jesus. And the second reason why this book is significant, particularly at this time of the year, is the story that it tells. You see, the story of Hosea, Hosea is commanded by the Lord, by God, to take for himself an unfaithful wife. He knows beforehand that he's going to take this woman to be his wife and she is not going to be faithful to him. And in fact, she bears many children to other men. And still knowing all of this, Hosea, in obedience to God, takes this woman, her name is Goma, uh, and he takes her and marries her in obedience to God. So, And his relationship with her and her adultery, her unfaithfulness, become this prophetic example to Israel. And why the book is significant is because it's a love story. It's a true story, it's a, it's a tragic story, but it's a very real story. And it's about a story about a man's commitment to his bride in spite of her wanton ways. And of course, transcending all of that as it plays out in the natural as a prophetic picture is God's love for his nation, Israel. And, and it tells of this heart-wrenching tale of, 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 of God's um, you know, heartbreak over the unfaithfulness of his people. And so we hear it, and we come to the third chapter, and this is after 
the story of uh, Hosea who's taken his wife and she's become unfaithful to him. And this is what God's command is to Hosea in, in verse, chapter 3 and verse 1. And this is after the unfaithfulness. God says, go show your love to your wife again. And though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Man, isn't that a hard assignment right there? Can you imagine what that must have been like? And this is what God says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. See, there's this, this prophetic, this transcendent aspect to it. God is saying, you take this woman back and you love her in spite of the fact that she's not been faithful to you. And do that in the same way that God has, been loved, has loved the Israelites. And though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, turn to other gods. We understand that's something. God said, you shall have no other god beside me. So God was a jealous God. He wanted them to worship him and him alone. But the sacred raisin cakes, I mean, that's a bit of a strange one, is it not? Don't love, it doesn't mean tomorrow, no Christmas pudding or, or Christmas cake or anything of that nature, plum pudding, right? That's not what it's about. So don't get bent out of shape over that one. The sacred raisin cakes were a problem because they were sacred. Sacred not to God, but sacred to the foreign gods to whom they were, uh, were being offered. In fact, the raisins were a picture of flourishing vineyards and, and swelling bank accounts, if you will. Basically, it was a, uh, it was a symbol of decadence, of luxuriant living, of, of, of um, people trusting in their own skills and not necessarily looking to the Lord for their provision. And so Hosea is actually asked to take back this wayward woman who's prostituted herself with many lovers and indulged in this extravagant life, devoid of any relationship uh, with, with, with God. And, and, you know, it's similar to, I guess, many parallels in our world today. But just like Hosea's wife, Israel, had stopped trusting in the Lord as their sole sufficiency. And they'd relied on political alliances with the surrounding nations for their provision and their protection instead of looking to God. And that's my grandson going out again. Look at that. <laughs> Sinful man that he is. I wonder where he got that from. <laughs> so anyway, when, goodbye, Theodore. Thanks for coming. It's been a pleasure. So when the northern kingdom falls around to Assyrian around 722, at the, around the end of Hosea's ministry, it was an act of God's judgment on its sin and its idolatry and its lack of attention to its duty to follow the Lord faithfully. And Hosea had seen it coming, and so he's speaking to the nation in the lead-up to all of this. And this is what he says. This is the rap sheet, if you will, in terms of what was going on. This is what God said about, about Israel, mirroring, in fact, what was going on in the natural with Hosea and his wife. He says, there's no faithfulness, there's no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. You know, things weren't going too well for the nation of Israel at this point. And so with all that background, I actually want to come to today's text, which is at Hosea 14. This is the end of the book. So I'm going to go all the way. I've set the scene. And this is how it concludes. And this is why it's important around Christmas time. And this is what it says, the call for Israel to turn back. Hosea 14 and starting at verse 1. O Israel. It's God's call to his people. Oh, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Iniquity is just a fancy name for sin. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all our iniquity. 
Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We know that for a fact. Assyria, in fact, attacked them and decimated them. And we will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. In other words, our idols, the things we've crafted. You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. See, by this point, Israel had come to the realisation that they had a problem. They were sick. They had a serious illness. It was called sin. It was straying after other things. And they needed healing. And like a doctor, God goes to work on his people. See, God had diagnosed the issue and the disease, rather, was a direct result of their sin. And God, you know, is a specialist working in the field of restoration. That's what Christmas is about. God goes to work. In fact, in Psalm 147 and verse 3, it says, He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. See, for us, our wounds are our sin and our own remedies that we try to apply and, and uh, go about in our own life, they're just useless. It's true of them, it's true of us. And so like any doctor would, God starts with the problem and then he works towards the cure. And this is where it starts, to go back to verse 1 again. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity, because of your sin. You have stumbled. O Israel, return. The key for these people, as it is for us, is to return. And the word there in the Hebrew is actually mean, carries with it this wholehearted turn. This is not some half-hearted thing. It's, it, nothing's withheld with this word. It means repentance, to come all the way back to God, to come all the way back to our original relationship, back to our first love, back to the recognition, in our case, back to the basics of the gospel and of, of a life of obedience, of surrender. And it means like getting tough on ourselves. It means recognising that it's, it's sometimes costly and it's inconvenient to follow the Lord. Sometimes we have to make hard decisions. It offends our pride. It offends our sense of self-determination. But, you know, it's the only way that we're ever going to know the healing of God. And it's not because God is unknowable nor accessible. We have stumbled, it says, because of our iniquity. Or, or another version would say, your sins have been your downfall. And we stumble because of their iniquity. And the two things that Israel was doing wrong was, one, they had a misplaced hope. The other thing they had was a misplaced trust. The misplaced hope was in the foreign nations. You see, Israel as a nation was losing influence in the, in the, in the society in which they were. They were no longer a political force in their region. And that was largely because God had chosen to withhold his blessing from them because of their disobedience. And so instead of turning back to God, they turned to the other nations. They turned to Egypt. They turned to Assyria. They forged alliances with them. Because you see, they could see the symptoms of their problem. They just were misdiagnosing the cure. And they were turning to irrelevant and ineffective remedies. And that's sometimes how it can be for us. You know, we, we know we're not going well with God, but what do we do? We run to the latest self-help book. We, we go to the latest conference. We reach out for, for some sort of um, the latest thing that might just give us a little boost in our faith instead of turning back to God. The second thing, as I say, was their misplaced trust. And that was because they put their trust in foreign gods instead of the true God. See, again, because they were losing influence, because they were failing as a nation, 
They thought what we'll do is we'll do what the other nations do. We will actually go and we'll worship these other foreign gods, these fertility gods, and in the hope that just somehow they might be able to bless their crops and their herds by indulging in their sinful practices, and some of those rituals were pretty nasty things. In order that they might gain the favour of those gods, and with all that going on, this is why God commands Hosea to take the unfaithful wife. And so in Hosea 2.5, this is what God had said of Israel. She said, that she being Israel, I will go after my lovers. Her lovers, in this case, were the Baals, the, the, the gods of the other nations, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. In other words, they were looking to these other foreign gods to actually bless them. But the pain in God's heart, a couple of verses on, and this is what God says, says, she's not acknowledged that I was the one. It was me. I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. I was the one who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. Can you hear the pain in God's heart? Like a jilted lover, the man whose wife had been unfaithful to him. And so it was, our turning to the exotic things of the other nations and the erotic things of the, the gods of, and the Baal worship. And they drank down the spirit of depravity and with his continuing lust for more, they were effectively unfaithful to God. And so the old biblical faith, it seemed old hat, irrelevant, no longer meeting their needs compared to their newfound lovers that they were running after and enjoying their, their, that, that lifestyle. And so they turned from God and they pinned their hopes on, the, on those futile worldly pleasures. Because they didn't think that God was capable, as their heavenly husband, of actually doing what he said he would do in his word and be their all-sufficiency. So God then gives them some very practical steps to back up again and look at the scriptures that we just read. God says this, take words with you. That's it, simple. When we return to God, you know, it says in, in uh, 1 John and 1 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, when we turn to God, that's all we've got. We can't come with our religious rituals. We can't come with a sense of personal merit. All we can do is turn to God and take words with us. That's it. Romans 10.10 says, it is with your mouth that confession is made unto salvation. When we turn to God, in fact, the only thing we can ever bring to God is words. And ourselves, of course, with those words. Take words with you and return to the Lord. And well, what kind of words? Well, honest and heartfelt words. Words that are sincere. Words with no equivocation, no ev evasion, no excuses. Words like this. Say to him, take away all our iniquity. In other words, we don't want it anymore. We're done with flirting with the world. We've had enough of it. It's done us nothing but harm. Take away all our iniquity. The second thing he says is, receive us graciously. You know, when we come and we repent and we bring words to God and we lay before him and confess our need of him, he receives us graciously. The grace of God is poured out upon us in abundance. And the third thing is this, we, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. In other words, we're going to praise God. We're going to give something to him. We're going to offer a sacrifice to him, which is to actually give honour to him. In fact, in Ephesians 1, it uses this word blessed or praise. It says, praise or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in 
the heavenly places in Christ. You know, when God blesses us, the word blessed there, your praise, is the Greek word eulogeo, from where we get the word eulogy, which, of course, we use at funerals, and it's, it's a word which means to speak well of or to praise. In other words, we are to speak well of God because why? He has, in fact, spoken well of us. He has, in fact, blessed us. And so beyond the words that we're to bring, God seeks our recommitment by showing us what to turn away from. So as we read on, this is what they say, Assyria shall not save us and we will not ride on horses. Daryl Braithwaite would be a little bit disappointed with that, I'm sure. But that's just the way it's going to be, little darling. We will not ride on horses. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Come on. Nor will say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in you, you, Lord, the fatherless, find mercy. In other words, there's this recognition by the people of God that the course they've been taken is wrong. And what's God's response to that? When they come and they take words and when they come before God and they turn away from these things, this is what God says. This is what Jesus came at Christmas for. He says, I will heal their backsliding, verse 4. I will love them freely for my anger has been turned away from him him being Ephraim or Israel Ephraim being a proxy for Israel as we declare our intention to turn back to God to follow him and speak forth our words of of contrition before him his inten- his intention is to be gracious toward us he says I'll heal them I will love them freely like a doctor God goes to work He brings his healing. He doesn't require bulk billing. He doesn't require private health cover. This is a free gift. Because all of us, every one of us, is born with a birth defect called original sin. And of course, on top of that, we pile on our own self-inflicted wounds through our own waywardness and our folly. But God, God is able to do radical surgery upon us to his injured patients, and the prognosis is full recovery. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, right? But it's, it's the sick. He says, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's us. All he wants for us to do is to put off false appearances and admit how sick we truly are and how much we need, ourselves, need the Lord, how much we need to check ourselves into God's hospital and come under his care. And here we just read on just as we start to bring this into a close. The fruitfulness that God brings to us as we do that. Let's read on in verses 5 to 7. God says, I'll be like the Jew to Israel. In other words, when we repent, when we turn back to God, when we confess before him, he's going to be like the Jew. In other words, there's going to be a come a new freshness. He said he will grow like the lily. In other words, we're going to flourish. We'll be healthy and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. In other words, there's going to be a depth that's deepening that's going to come. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like the olive tree. In other words, there's going to be a beauty. There's going to be an attractiveness and his fragrance like Lebanon, and those who dwell under his shadows shall return. Dwelling under the shadows like this spreading of influence is what happens when these are the fruits of the Spirit, right? This is what it looks like when a believer is walking before God. And they shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. In other words, it's going to come abundant life to the believer who does this, and their scent shall be like that of the wine of Lebanon. In other words, there's a fragrance that comes. 
to the people who come before God in this way. And finally, verse 8, when we're, this is the renunciation uh, that uh, the people of Israel, and Ephraim shall say this, what have I to do anymore with idols? In other words, I'm turning, I've had enough of that. I'm, I have heard and observed him, that is God, and I'm like a green cypress tree, your fruit is found in me. In other words, what it's saying is I get the picture now, I understand how it is, Everything's now clear. God is my healer. He is my father and I will turn away from those things and follow him. One thing, final word I just want to say about Hosea, and this is where I see it's particularly relevant to the Christmas message when we reflect on the birth of Jesus because the healing and the blessedness that I've spoken of, it's only possible because of the incredible lengths that God went to to send us his one and only son. So I said at the outset, Hosea's name, Hoshea or Yeshua, is the name, God is my salvation. And with that, maybe I'll invite the band if you would come, please. And this is the Christmas message right here. I read it before in Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1. This is what God said to Hosea. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, and love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. In other words, in sending Jesus, yeah, while we're yet sinners, it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love like this. While we're yet sinners, God uh, sent his son to save us. That's the message of Christmas. But then, two verses on, and this is the message of the cross. And this is why Christmas is important. Because Hosea had to pay a price to redeem his bride, the unfaithful one. He paid a price, just like Jesus paid a price. Christmas without a cross means nothing. This is what Hosea did, says in verse 3. So I bought her. What love, what incredible love to this unfaithful woman, to this unfaithful nation. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. And then I told her, this is what God says to us, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I'll behave the same way toward you. That is God's faithfulness. Jesus paid the price. It was much more than 15 shekels of silver or a homer or a lethic of barley. I mean, God sent his only son to die on a cross, to shed his own precious blood, the sinless lamb of God given up. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, the faithful for the unfaithful. If we're to do anything this Christmas, may we be reminded again that when we celebrate tomorrow the birth of that baby, it's because he was the one who grew to be the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The words of the song we're about to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which I love this hymn because it's so significant in terms of theology that it contains. But within it, there's these words. It says, Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. That's the message of Christmas. But born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Remember, he is the one who has risen with healing in his wings. When we talk about God who heals this Christmas, 
We're the ones who need the healing. We're the ones who recognise that when we celebrate Jesus, it's because of the significance of the cross that this baby that we we behold at this time of year means everything to us. Because this unfaithful and wayward woman that we've read about today has given way because of the blood of Jesus for us to be the bride of Christ without spot, without blemish, pure and holy in His sight. What an incredible privilege that is for us to celebrate at this time.